2: This is the John Fugelsang podcast.
3: Good evening. Welcome to Tell Me Everything here on SiriusXM Progress. I'm Joe Sudby. I'm going to be in for John tonight. He wasn't feeling well, and uh, asked me if I could jump on. He and Chris and I said, of course, because you know, otherwise I would be sitting here listening to John screaming and yelling. And having the TV on in the background and just trying to unpack what the hell happened today. Five votes, five votes for Kevin McCarthy today. He lost all of them. He's not the speaker. He's 0 for 11. 0 for 11. That's I mean, we are watching history unfold before our eyes. We are watching a political party that has no agenda, has no plans has nothing to offer the American people, can't even do the most fundamental job of electing a speaker of the House. So right now, we don't have a functioning House of Representatives. Not that we'll have a functioning House if and when Republicans ever take control, because they are clearly not interested in governing, not in any way, shape, or form. That is on display before us right now. And I got to tell you, I, I see all these reporters and pundits, and they're all asking, where are the moderate Republicans? Why aren't they trying to fix this? Well, what do you mean, moderate Republicans? Like, what do you mean? I I just, that term is just Such bullshit, really. There there are no moderate Republicans. There are just less extreme Republicans. And I'll tell you, you know, to me, one of the greatest examples of how extreme the party is, is that seven of the 11 members of Republicans who have nominated McCarthy so far voted to overturn the 2020 election just two years ago. Almost two years ago tomorrow, although it was late in the early in the morning of January 7th when they finally took these votes because there was an attack on the Capitol launched by their leader, one true leader, Donald Trump, sent his minions to the Capitol to kill them, kill Donald, kill Mike Pence and whoever else they could get their hands on. And then 147 House members still voted to overturn the election, including Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise, the number two, and Elise Stefanik, the number three, and Jim Jordan, who might someday become the chair of the House Judiciary Committee. This is who we're dealing with, and it's right on display for the American people. And tonight they took a few votes at night. Let let Kevin lose in prime time. I think that's really important. Um, (laughs) It's the thing about this speaker fiasco and I saw a tweet from Tom Bonyer from Target Smart, who is just terrific. He was one of the people that helped keep us sane in the lead up to the election in um, 2022, when all the smarty pants prognosticators and pundits were telling us there was going to be a red wave or maybe a red tsunami. And he was just looking at the early vote and keeping us calm and reminding us what was happening out in the field. And turns out he was right and they were all wrong. He wrote, the thing about this speaker fiasco is if you think the GOP looks dysfunctional and extreme now, just wait until they actually select a leader and get about to executing their agenda in the House. In a few minutes, I'm going to be joined by Corey Bretschneider. You've heard him on this show many times, Professor Corey Bretschneider. And I want to talk to him about that because I know he has some thoughts. You know, what are they? What is this party? And, you know, we got a pretty good indication of it in 2021, early 2021, and nothing has improved. And what are the other things, you guys, that I keep hearing them say? I hear there, as they're nominating Kevin McCarthy, they will say things like, you know, we have a very small majority. And, of course, all the media is like, oh, yes, Kevin McCarthy has a small majority. He doesn't have a lot to work with. Why do they have a small majority? Like, we, you know, they were thinking there was going to be a red wave, a red tsunami, we were told. Why didn't they? Why don't they? Why do they have such a small majority? Because they're a bunch of extremists and the American people rejected them. Now, they kept the House by a, this small majority majority. Because of gerrymandering and because of, you know, voter suppression laws. And to be honest, because Democrats made some strategic mistakes. Congressman John James from Michigan today was one of the people who nominated McCarthy. This is his first term. If you were reading about that race in Michigan, he was running against the Democrat, Colin Merlinga. Oh, he was going to win. It was just a it was It was a done deal. Like, why even bother have the election? That's literally any I was Googling articles today because I knew this was my recollection. He won by 1900 votes, just over 1900 votes. And the Democrats didn't even invest. The National Democrats didn't even invest to help their candidate. That's a good example of, you know, some races where the Democrats didn't Do what they needed to do and don't even get me going on those New York races and John Patrick Maloney and how he messed that all up. But they do have a small majority. And every time, this is the other thing that drives me crazy. You see, you know, you're watching the commentary and I'll every now and then, you don't hear it on this channel, thankfully, but I'll put on MSNBC or CNN for a little bit or I'll read some article. You know, McCarthy's really trying hard to navigate with this small majority, 222 members. That's what Nancy Pelosi had in the last Congress, 222 members. What did they do? The American Rescue Plan, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, the Inflation Reduction Act. They passed the marriage bill. They passed so much legislation because Nancy Pelosi knew what she was doing. And she had a caucus that's committed to governing. Kevin McCarthy has no real agenda besides, you know, Kevin McCarthy. I mean, it's really (laughs) one of my friends told me she got a text today from a Republican lobbyist who said this is just a vanity project for Kevin McCarthy right now. And that's what it feels like. And again, what are they going to do with their power when they get it? This is Tell Me Everything. I'm Joe Sudbig, guest hosting for John tonight. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a few minutes.
1: slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month.
3: Welcome back, indeed, to Tell Me Everything. I'm Joe Sudbey, guest hosting for John. And I tell you guys, I'm really excited that I get to talk to Professor Corey Bretschneider. I hear him talk to John. I'm a big fan. He's Super smart, as you know, a professor with a Ph.D. in politics from Princeton, a law degree from Stanford, and he uses them to enrich his students' lives in the poli-sci department at Brown. He's an author, frequent commentator, and I'm just glad you're, you're here on this day of all days. Welcome, to, welcome back to the show, uh, Professor Brett Schneider.
2: Thanks, Joe, for that kind introduction. And yeah, absolutely, what a what a day in history uh, to to get to to meet each other on air and and to talk politics.
3: Yeah, so let's just let's just start big picture. And um, what are your what are your thoughts on what we've seen play out over the past couple days?
2: Well, I think we're starting to see that the Republican Party of today really doesn't resemble uh, anything in the past, uh, you know, it was a party, for all my many disagreements with it about policy, that had at least some ideas of policy and governing. There were ones that I didn't agree with, but they were interested in governing. And I'm not so sure about that anymore. I mean, I think you certainly have some members who have a policy agenda, but when I think about, um, you know, Bo Bo- Bobart um, and and her cast of characters, I think they're interested in chaos and that this is sort of the point and uh, you know the attention they've generated for themselves the uh, twitter hits that they're getting i think in a way that's the sort of idea here and so you know the lens that political scientists for instance would bring to thinking about uh what what's involved in choosing a house speaker I, i think in some ways That's out the window now. You know, this wouldn't happen if there was a much larger margin uh, here. I mean, it's partly about how badly it went for the Republicans during the midterms, but I do think this is, um, I mean, a a rise of a new kind of politics that is not about policy. It's in an extreme way about about me (laughs) and about uh, you know getting on television. And it's also interesting to me too to see you know the the sort of people I think of as the real problem in American politics, the R- Rupert Murdoch in particular and Fox, I watched Hannity and, and Beaufort, uh, uh going at it against one another. And, you know, Hannity was, uh, you know, taking the side of, of thinking about moving things forward and governing the nation. And when he's the responsible party, uh, things are really out the window. <laughs>
3: yeah, that, that, is, that, that really, that really, Shows the dire situation we're in, it, it, it is really interesting. And you know, I I I I watched. I've watched so much of it, and it's interesting how many of the uh members, Republican members, who are uh, nominating Kevin McCarthy, have mentioned that small majority that they have, and mm-hmm. they kind of talk about it with almost this pride. We have a small majority, but we're gonna, you know, we're gonna show. And I'm like, well you know i wonder if there's any introspection among any of them because as you mentioned you know that wasn't supposed to happen in 2022 given the historical right. precedents that you know you know many many people in your field had talked about over for years um uh, uh, you know what would happen in the you know first term of a new president and right. you know and i wonder to what extent part of that is that they really have shown they had no interest in governing and they had yes. no agenda except for a kind of extremism.
2: Yeah. And, and I think that is the you know optimistic spin on all of this, that we can watch the micro uh, details of the fighting within the party and think about how off the rails it's gone uh, from a party that at least had a policy agenda to one that has none from a party that had at least the semblance of caring about order. I mean, they when I was in college, they talked about the Republican Party as an organizational party. It had party discipline. And, you know, all of that sort of story is, is out the window. And, you know, the, I do think we could talk more about this, but there's something very worrying about when a, a political party turns against democracy. That that says something very dangerous, I think, about the country as a whole when, when you don't have a loyal opposition. And, and in many ways, they really are not a loyal opposition or a party that's turned against democracy. So that's the Worrying part of all of this, but the optimistic side, which you point to exactly uh, in the right way, is that Americans cared about that. And in this midterm elections, when they turned against the Republican Party by voting against so many of their candidates, and especially the ones that Trump was touting as his candidates, the election deniers, uh, you know, that says that Americans do care about this issue. One cynical take was that uh you know democracy is a winning issue for the democrats the the winning issues are bread and butter economic issues inflation um uh unemployment you know the economy and of course those things are important but without a democracy uh you know it, it's very hard to see how we could get a handle on on any of those and the fact that the american people in mass said no we do care about our democracy by not um uh by rebuffing the opposition party in a way that is unusual, as you say, for a midterm election, that says to me that, you know, they they are falling apart. They are dangerous. But there's pushback against uh, not just hardcore Democrats, not just the left, of course, but, but a, a moderates and independents and some Republicans as well. And, you know, it was a shame that we only saw Liz Cheney and, and really very few Republicans stand up to, to Trump. Um, uh, McCarthy, of course, hinting that maybe he would be for a January 6th committee and then turning against it. Um, you know, that, that, that I would have liked to have seen more. But when the American people went to the polls, I, I think that's the optimistic take on all this. But it's balanced out, frankly, by the worry that you just the future of democracy of America with an opposition that is really, you know, still digging in against democracy. I, I, you know, can we survive it? It's still an open question.
3: Yeah, you know, and really, it's so interesting because I I do give a lot of credit to the voters and for voters for understanding, you know, what was at risk. And I just remember, like, the week before the election, President Biden gave a speech at Union Station where he talked about democracy, and he really kind of got, you know, dismissed by a lot of the, Political media, the national media—they were wondering why he wasn't talking about inflation, and right. it, was, it, it was really one of these things. And I'm interested in your take, um, Dr. Uh, Brett Schneider, that it's that kind of like the closer you were to it, or the more you were in the DC bubble, the, you know, you you were so used to if you're in the DC bubble, they're Republicans, they're Democrats, you know, there's right. the both sides to everything, you know, that right. whole blah 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 thing. But the reality was outside of that bubble, it was really, people grasped the danger we're in. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on that?
2: Yeah, I thought that was a brilliant speech. And it really amplified a lot of what the January 6th committee was doing. Yeah. And it flew against the traditional wisdom that you get from professional consultants, you know, to fo- focus on bread and butter issues. I can remember in, in 2016, when I started doing this show with john i wrote a piece called trump versus the constitution and and my point was this isn't the normal candidate and he's leading the republican party increasingly and especially as he took power in a direction that really is different than the normal partisan politics and that they are turning against fundamental parts of constitutional democracy the rule of law free speech and of course recently trump has doubled down on all this not only during his actions during January 6th by saying we should scrap the Constitution or large parts of it because it doesn't accord with him remaining as leader. uh, You know, that to me said something very dangerous about the direction of, you know, a good portion of the country, certainly that candidate, that president and that party. And the thing that I was met with, not by John, of course, and we talked a lot at length about this, but by, I would say, Um, you know, the professional class of consultants and also many political scientists is that's impossible for Democrats to take on as an issue. You're talking like a Republican about this Constitution stuff. And, you know, maybe there was something to that. Remember, it was the Tea Party uh, where McCarthy himself has his roots that was concerned about the Constitution, And that wasn't a Democratic way of talking, but the events of Trump and Trumpism and what we saw over not just that campaign, but of course the four years culminating in January 6th. And much of what we saw, I think, was consistent with what finally happened in January 6th, the hostility to constitutional democracy, um, uh, that all of that said, to me, the Democratic Party better reframe the way it talks about things. It isn't enough to just talk about economics and that matters it isn't just enough to talk about um things that matter to the middle and working class you have to talk about the structure of government and to cede that to the other side just spoke to me of a of a danger to the whole system because they had really by that time the the rhetoric of the tea party had floated away to a rhetoric of authoritarianism which is what trump aspired to be didn't, didn't quite succeed but certainly tried And, uh, you know, it it is an existential question for the future of the country, whether or not we could recover from Trumpism by having one party, it wasn't going to be the the Republican Party, take on as its mantle the the future and preservation of democracy. And when Biden made that speech, I thought, you know, this guy is at least getting it in some ways. I have a lot of criticisms of Biden. I don't think he's gone far enough in shoring up uh, our constitutional system, checks on the presidency, for instance. But at least he was seeing the issue, the frame here. And when you see what this Republican Party is really about in the last couple of days, the the, the threat to democracy that they pose just gets gets more serious. And and thankfully, I, I do think that Biden at some fundamental gut level gets that threat.
3: Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, and I thought. And I thought that speech was very important and it built on what had happened with the January 6th committee. We also had this playing out against a backdrop where rights were taken away from over half the population when by the Supreme Court. And it, it just felt like, you know, so many of the kind of insider crowd, that political consulting crowd, just couldn't grasp it because, you know, it, it is kind of one of those things that it's hard to quantify to, you know, is our democracy in danger? And and, and they it, it just didn't fit with their usual systems. Um, now, you've spent a lot of time thinking about the Constitution and Trump, and you wrote a book, The Oath and the Office, A Guide to the Constitution for Future Presidents. One of the things that I'm interested in is there's also the oath in the office for members of the House. And right now, we don't have a functioning house. We can't <laughs> even have members take... The oath to become right. members of Congress, right? So, right, what, right. like, is there any historical context for this? And and <laughs> what the, you know? I'm just like, what does it say about? I, I we've talked about it a bit, but it just says to me we don't have a House of Representatives, one of the most fun, to, one of our really important, print you know, right. entities. Uh, what do you think about that?
2: yeah I mean that that is a great point that the first step in in doing your constitutional duty is to take that that oath to protect the Constitution and uh you know that's something that that we when it comes to the presidency we we assume will happen and when it comes to the House and the Senate we assume will happen and now actually without a speaker, the dysfunction prevents that oath from even being taken so to play the most basic role in the system even to fake it it just becomes Impossible, but you know, I think that's a symbol of where we are—that we do not have a functional Republican Party. It is—it isn't, isn't, as I said, a in any way a loyal opposition, a, a party within the, the contours of the principles of liberal democracy. It's a party that is really at odds with those ideas, and so the idea that they can't even administer the oath to, to pretend at least to uh, respect the Constitution really drives home that point. I, I love uh, that way of putting it. I mean, the only other, you know, and you know, th- this might sound like some, uh, might sound like hyperbole, but I actually don't don't think it is. I mean, look, let's focus on what happened on January 6th. There was an attempted insurrection, an attempt to stop the, the peaceful transition of power, violent attempt uh, to do so. And, um, uh, you know, a plan that was hatched at the, the president's allies, at least. So it looks like the president was included in it. It included members of Congress to try to deny the acceptance of the electoral votes. There was a plan to have the vice president <laughs> unilaterally, uh, basically try to appoint his president, Trump, <laughs> uh, as the president by refusing to certify to. to carry out the formal duties of the vice president. There weren't supposed to be any real powers there. Um, And to misread the Constitution as really allowing the vice president to pick, um, uh, to override a democratic election. That is, you know, we can't lose focus on what that was. It was an insurrection. And after the Civil War, of course, there was a real worry about ceding, allowing uh, those sympathetic to the, rebellion to the Confederacy uh, to to continuing to serve. And there was a concerted effort to make sure that that didn't happen and that there was a weeding out of the disloyal forces that had really rebelled from the country. But even at that time, there wasn't an attempted violent takeover of the Capitol or a disruption of the election that came anything close to what we saw on January 6th. So I would say there is a a parallel, certainly, in the Civil War period. Um, but in, in some ways, this was worse. I mean, the other, I guess, context that I might think of is, you know, there was an attempt during the Adams administration to, um, by the Federalist Party to try to do something similar to what happened to disrupt the peaceful transition of power, but that didn't work either. <laughs> and it was yeah. uh, reported on and foiled and quickly abandoned. Mm-hmm. Uh, not long after the Federalist Party uh, sees its own demise. So so those are the two moments in history that I'm thinking about. Um, and, you know, maybe it's the case, I, this is maybe too optimistic, but one way to see what's happening is when a party reveals itself, as the Republican Party is, to be so dysfunctional. Um, uh, can it continue in, in history? I, I hope not. I mean, that's, to my mind, in, in many ways, a good thing the Federalist Party died out. It was a party that was deeply attached to some ideas of monarchy. Certainly, it's a good thing that the, those sympathetic to the Confederacy um, no longer had power, although they, they tried to regain it at different points and never approached the kind of rebellion that we had during the Civil War itself. So maybe that's a, the hopeful sp- <laughs> that the, the parallels here suggest the eventual demise of the Republican Party, at least in its current form.
3: Yeah, I think it's, you know, I I have to think it's really interesting that obviously many of them are playing to the base, the, the, the hardcore base that was cheering them on and some of them actually at the Capitol on January 6th. But there is, you know, it's been a party that has always been, let's just say it's perceived as a pro-business party, very much so. Mm. I have to think there's a lot of people in the Chamber of Commerce who are thinking, what the hell have we got here? Because, you know, <laughs> what, you know and, and it's one thing, I, I, and, and I, don't, I know we've got to wrap up in a few minutes, but I, I wanted to ask you too, you know, when you think about it, what do they want to do? Like, they don't want to govern, but right. what is their agenda? They don't have an agenda, a policy agenda. They have an investigative agenda. They have a, a, you know, that that is another scary piece of it. In the past, they wanted to govern in a way that I disagreed with. But this is a party that like, what what happens when they finally get a speaker?
2: Yeah, I don't think there's a collective agenda. I think, you know, as you said, the Republican Party is, is born in some ways as a civil rights party think of ulysses grant and and did amazing things for civil rights and the grant administration um uh, members of congress resisted uh you know the racist president johnson um before grant uh and then they transformed away from civil rights that was a a terrible moment for the country but they at least had an agenda which was pro-business and again not a good thing in many ways what what they did with that abandoning civil rights for uh, really looking after the interests of capitalism and, and capitalists in the most raw sense. But it was an agenda. And so what is the agenda now? I mean, I think it's social media presence. Yeah. These are not, you know, brilliant people. When you listen to Boebert, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, Matt uh, uh, gets, they're 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 really thinking in the most short term, Raw form of um, of of social media, of media politics, of getting on television, and you know they might win out. I think that Murdoch has an agenda, and as a result, his uh, lackeys on Fox, like like Hannity, do. And when you watch Bober go against Hannity, you know I think I said in the beginning of the, our discussion, Hannity seems like the sane one. But I was reading the comments, and Bober <laughs> was definitely winning. The comment section so they know how to get attention for themselves and they, they don't have an agenda aside from themselves I think it's the most narcissistic form of politics and the worst aspects of, of social media and the dopamine rush that it might bring to them and that's what they're going after
3: yeah it is really something I'm just really glad well I'm sorry that John wasn't feeling well but Since he wasn't, I was glad I got to hop on tonight and guest host to have a conversation with you, because uh, what a night to have it, Um, Professor Corey Brett Schneider. And you are on Twitter, for as long as it lasts, at least, (laughs) as uh, Brett Schneider C. We'll see where that goes, too. Thanks for joining us tonight, and I look forward to hearing you talk to John in the future. Thanks a lot.
2: Thanks so much. It was a real pleasure. And I'm going to give my nephew, Eli, who is tonight, and very interested in these these developments a shout out
3: all right thanks for thanks for listening eli and uh we're going to take a break we'll be back in just a few minutes
4: okay picture this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you i can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or i can hop into my all-new hyundai santa fe and hit the road With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
3: Well, yes, welcome back to Tell Me Everything. I'm Joe Sudbay guest hosting for John, and again, I'm... Sorry, John's sick, and I'm hoping he's feeling better very soon, but I have to say, I really lucked out because I get to talk to some amazing people tonight, and I'm really excited now to be joined by Dr. Jason Nichols. You've heard him on this channel many times. He's an award-winning, full-time senior lecturer in the African-American Studies Department at the University of Maryland in College Park.
0: Welcome back to the show, Dr. Nichols. Uh thank you joe it's great to be here with you great to meet you for the first time yeah it's great to meet you too and what a night to
3: meet i mean i guess there's a few things we can talk about um so let's just go big picture and uh what are your impressions of what we're seeing on capitol hill these past few days
0: well in in a lot of ways i think it's indicative of what we've been seeing from the gop for the last six years i mean Um, They were kind of in lockstep with Trump. And then you, you know, as things have kind of progressed and evolved, there's a monster now that Trump can't even control. And they are in such disarray. They're so disorganized. Um, I think the American people are finally getting a full view that this is a dysfunctional group of people. I mean, we should have seen that, or I think you and I saw that and many others, uh, you know, on our side of the aisle definitely saw, you know, with Trump, uh, all of the, you know, people he had to change in and out of the White House. And, you know, somebody was getting fired every week. People were lasting 11 days um, that this was just a party that is not fit to govern. And now it's even, it, even worse you know and and they're just in complete disarray it's hilarious to watch but at the same time at some point we want the work of the american people to get done you know we want some governing done and nobody can even get seated because of the clown show that the gop has going on right now it's an embarrassment right now for them they should be embarrassed from having someone like george santos about to be seated but just when I thought that was the most embarrassing thing that was going to happen to them, they they go and devolve into this mess that we're seeing right now.
3: Yeah, what a mess! And it is it is it's interesting. I was mentioning to one of our callers in the last hour how. Watching on C-SPAN, it's really interesting how often those C-SPAN cameras focus on George Santos. <laughs> Just a reminder of, don't forget this scandal, too. You know, um, it's really interesting. You used a word, uh, Jason, disarray. And I think back over the years, how many times you would see headlines, Dems and disarray. And it was never... You know, it was always something, you know, that they were going to work out or, you know, there was negotiations going on and the media would say, dumbs in disarray. And I feel like they've always had this aversion to saying it about Republicans. But literally, Republicans are defining disarray right now. And like you mentioned, we don't have a House. There is not. There there are supposed to be 435 members of the House. And obviously right now, 434 because of um, the loss of Representative McKeachin, But. We don't have any members of the House. We have a lot of members elect, but like that's that's that's, that's not really a good situation for a functioning democracy.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, well, I, I think people say that Democrats uh, or always like to to suggest that Democrats were in disarray because of the fact that we are a big tent party ideologically, right. you know. Uh, When you look even right now, if you have Kevin McCarthy or you have Byron Donalds or you have Jim Jordan or you have Andy Biggs or you even had Donald Trump, they're all going to do the exact same thing. Like there's not a whole lot of ideological space between them. As a matter of fact, they're all going to uh, go into these long investigations on covid and harass Dr. Fauci. They're all you know, going to, you know, be planning to uh, go into Hunter Biden's laptop. You know, they had they all want to gut Social Security. Uh, other than that, they really don't have any kind of policy. They're going to kind of spitball it. Um, they're all going to talk about the border and do, you know, and try to impeach Myarcus. Like there's really not a lot of ideological room there. However, What what it is, and this is what happens when you create a cult of personality like they did in 2016 by bringing in Donald Trump and saying, hey, this is our leader, is even though there's not a whole lot of ideological space like there is between say, AOC and Bernie Sanders and someone like Joe Biden uh, and someone like Joe Manchin, as a matter of fact, like even though that's the case, When you have all these different personalities and people want to get their five minutes on TV, they want to be on Fox News. They want to become the big name. um, That's when you start going into disarray. And it's not really about the American people. It's not about helping anybody. They have no plans. There's no agenda to help anyone you know, in terms of getting them health care or, you know, fixing the problems that we have, even though they talk about the border, they don't really have a solution for it. This is all about personalities. And so, you know, Matt Gates gets his little moment in the sh- in the sun and then Lauren Bobert's on TV every time I turn around. Um, and that's really what they are. And, that, and that's where you have all of this kind of infighting right now. This is all about personalities.
3: Well, and you've mentioned the big personality in that party, although there's a lot of competition to be the big personality. And you wrote about that big personality uh today at Newsweek a piece titled The Real Lesson of the Speaker Chaos is that Trump is finished in the GOP. Uh talk a little bit about that about what, what you wrote today.
0: Yeah, well, let me be clear, even though you know that is the title, I, I'm I've learned not to underestimate Donald Trump. Uh, I was one of those people in the media writing all the time. There's no way this guy is going to become president. This guy's a joke and uh, joke was on me and many other Americans. And I would say the whole of the United States and many parts of the world. So I don't I'm not saying that he's completely done, but his grip on the party has changed. People aren't afraid of him anymore, particularly after these midterms where they underperformed and i think even these members of the freedom caucus you know some of them are ideologically driven i I will say that and i think the ones who are actually ideologically driven when they saw trump picking these candidates many of them were elites and and corporate elites at that like dr oz And, you know, even, you know, someone who plays working class like like J.D. Vance, who's who's been wealthy longer than he's been working class in his life. You know, I think they're starting to get fed up with that, even though J.D. Vance did win. Um, Blake Masters and and all these other people. I think they're like, look, you're you're not the winner. You we thought you were, you know, you don't guarantee wins. You're not even anti-establishment and they used to think trump was someone who was going to blow up the whole, who was willing to blow the whole thing up and now he's telling them to vote for mccarthy and i think his grip we saw it really when lauren Boebert said yeah trump told us to knock it off but let me tell trump what to do trump yeah. tell yeah. kevin mccarthy that he need he doesn't have the votes he needs to quit and that, I think, was a very powerful moment. And, I, and I've and i interviewed Lauren Boebert before. Power and Lauren Boebert are not two words that I like to put together or powerful, <laughs> you know, along with many other words uh, that I would not put with Lauren Boebert. But that was a powerful moment saying, yeah, I mean, yeah, I like you, but you don't run things anymore. We're, we're going to do what we want to do. And uh, you saw Matt Gates kind of tried to, to kiss up to, to Trump by by nominating him as speaker. Uh, but other than that, I think a lot of people, particularly the establishment people, are no longer afraid of Trump. And now you have even his most ardent supporters are like, yeah, we support you. But, you know, we're kind of over you at the same time. And so Donald Trump, you know, he's lost so much of his grip happening if we went back and looked at his rallies uh, when he did that that embarrassing speakers tour with uh, was it Bill O'Reilly and they couldn't, you know, even give (laughs) give seats away. So his rally thing got all hackneyed and stale and trite. And then, uh, of course, you know, he uh, he got kicked off Twitter which was his strength. And he's a good tweeter, to be honest. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, like, I want to learn whatever special sauce he had with those <laughs> tweets. Like everybody was paying attention to his Twitter. He gets kicked off Twitter. Many of us believed he was going to start a news network because he's like obsessed with cable news. And instead, he starts a social media app. And when you're whatever they call it, truthing, it's just long rants. Like, he's not limited by by the the uh, character count. And that's to his detriment. It's just these long, boring rants that nobody wants to read. And so he's become more obscure, even within the party. We see his poll numbers and his approval numbers, those still very high within, within the GOP. They're di- taking a nosedive a little bit. And uh, I, I'm, you know, curious to see what happens, you know, in this primary. I mean... Ron DeSantis or someone else could very li- well come along and beat him. He's not the outsider anymore either. That's what happens. He, now he's kind of an insider, whereas when he stood up there with Jeb Bush, you know, and Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz. He was the outsider. Now he's not so much that. And I think some people even want someone who's a little more conventional, so they can start winning elections again. And and so I think Trump's grip. It is so it's not gone, but it's it's definitely severely weakened.
3: Right. This is this is so far another loss for him since he's endorsed McCarthy and McCarthy's not winning. And you mentioned Lauren Bobert. Um I saw the same thing with Representative Scott Perry, who was one of the leaders of the um, insurgency to overturn the election. You know, one of Trump's diehard supporters, Trump tried to get him to back away from opposing uh, McCarthy last night, and he, and that failed as well. So it will be interesting. I think the true test is when he gets on the debate stage with some of those others and to see what he can do to them. You know, one of the issues that you've mentioned a couple of times in terms of Republicans um, having no agenda on is the border. Um, President Biden today gave a speech talking about Title 42. I want to dive into that a little bit. But one of the things he got asked by a reporter, you know, uh, which they always do. They say, you know, you're finally going to the border. Republicans have wanted you to go for a long time. Why now? And he just said, Republicans haven't been serious about this at all. Come on, which is true. Republicans use the border as a place for photo ops and to rile up their base. But the underlying policy um, that the president announced today, and we're still trying to unpack it, but it feels like, you know, I saw the L.A. Times headline that it's Biden continuing the Trump policy on Title 42. And that just left a bad taste in my mouth. Um, what are you thinking along those, uh, along those lines?
0: Yeah, so uh, Title 42 was never supposed to be an immigration measure. Right. It's a public, it was a public health measure. And I think it's bad policy to use it as immigration policy. That's not what it was meant to do. It was for public health uh, purposes and for all intents and purposes. I I know that we're not out of the pandemic per se, but it certainly feels as though we are, we're walking around maskless. I think this is, Title 42 is now an excuse for Congress, which now hasn't even been seated, you know, to actually act on comprehensive immigration reform. That's what is supposed to happen. Congress needs to act. Now, I think in terms of certain things that Joe Biden said today were positive, in terms of the 30,000 people that he's gonna allow in from Haiti and Nicaragua and Venezuela, uh, and I wanna say Guatemala, And the fact that they're going to allow for them to use an app on their phone to apply, because many people who show up at the border, they show up seeking asylum and they don't actually, you know, people are like, well, you should have started this process in your own country. And when you've got people who don't know where to go, you know, if I had to get asylum in Mexico, I I honestly wouldn't know what to do, like other than maybe go to the go to the embassy or I'm not even sure what steps I would take. And, you know, I, I might end up going to the Mexican border. So um, I, I think now that they're actually saying, look, you can do this so that we can find out who you are and we can allow you to come in our country, give you, you know, the ability to work, you know, and it's going to be 30,000 people a month. And I think that that is a positive step. Other things that they're doing in terms of adding You know, and this is all executive action. So he's limited here. There's only a limit, there's a limit to what he can actually do. Um, And I'm sure Republicans, if they ever get their act together, they're gonna sue and try to stop him from doing some of these things. But they're adding more uh, border agents, you know, uh, to speed up processing, more border facilities uh, so that people aren't sleeping in tents in El Paso. Um, I think those things are largely positive. But to use Title 42 as as an immigration measure is, you know, dare I say it's pretty despicable because that's not really what it's supposed to be. But I think President Biden isn't the only person to blame here. I think, you know, Congress going back three decades is to blame for not actually going through with immigration reform even obama when he talked about daca he was like daca is this is not supposed to be comprehensive immigration reform this is to do something but you all need to act and i think we need to hold our elected officials accountable and say look come up with a bipartisan solution you know or at least you know whatever you need to get something done something that's humane something that allows for people are seeking asylum to get to safety something that allows for people uh to work in this country because as much as people complain about people coming immigrants coming to this country documented or undocumented the thing that's going to save social security is immigration that's a fact you know you talk to any economist they'll tell you that's the only way we're going to save social security and you know create a lot of the tax revenue that we need we actually have a declining population people who say i remember when trump said there's no space here we don't have space here in america <laughs> and it's like uh have you been to baltimore because i have and there's plenty of space you know uh have you been to st louis a city that's built for a million people and has three hundred thousand? there's plenty of space uh here we have a labor shortage Uh, Immigration is a good thing. Immigration is one of our strengths. It always has been. Um, We have to do it in a humane, orderly way. And Congress has failed the American people and people who want to be Americans with not acting on comprehensive immigration reform. uh,
3: I'm really glad we got to speak today. Dr. Jason Nichols on Twitter at Dr. Jason Nichols, a must follow. And uh, I I hope we get to talk again. It's always great to hear you when you're on with John. And uh, I'm excited that we had this chance to talk tonight.
0: Absolutely, Joe. It's great meeting you. And definitely we have to stay in touch, brother.
3: For sure. Uh, Let's take a break here on Tell Me Everything. We'll be back in just a few minutes.
4: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
1: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
3: Hello. Welcome to Tell Me Everything here on SiriusXM Progress. I'm Joe big guest hosting for John, who's been a little under the weather and i I have had a great time so far. And I am so excited, you guys, that our next guest could join us kind of at the last minute. Uh, welcome, David Neer from Daily Coast. How are you?
5: Joe, I am doing so great.
3: David, I was thinking the last time we spoke on SiriusXM Progress was at about 4 a.m. on November 9th. And it was it was one of the most exciting conversations we've ever had, and we've had a lot on the air. And uh, I, I was thinking about that today because how many times I heard over the past couple of days actually Republican members who are nominating Kevin McCarthy talk about their small majority, and they were boastful about you know well we've got a small majority, but blah blah blah. And you know, David. They do have a small majority, and they did that to themselves. And I just wonder if there's any sense of (laughs) introspection among any of them as to why that happened. And I just doubt it.
5: Joe, I have to disagree with you. A majority means that you can elect a speaker. We are at the end of day three, and there's no speaker. (laughs) So as far as I'm concerned, the GOP doesn't have a majority. We're Yeah.
3: That's, that's a really, really, really good point because they don't have a majority. We don't have a House of Representatives right now, either a functioning House of Representatives. And along those lines, you wrote a column, you wrote a piece at Daily Coast yesterday, um, and it was really provocative, And I, but I loved it. It was titled, What Happens If Republicans Never Pick a Speaker? It'd be good news, actually. Talk about that, David.
5: Yeah, I mean... It's a very strange place to find myself being a nihilist like this. (laughs) But the fact of the matter is, if Republicans do ever get around to picking a speaker, putting aside the fact that whoever that is will be the weakest speaker of the house, probably in American history, they're a instantly going to start their bullshit investigations, their trumped up charges and try to grind down the gears of government. And of course, much of the traditional media will breathlessly repeat all of their completely bogus findings, just like we saw with Benghazi and a million other times. B, they're not going to pass any legislation. That's, they, they, their goal is not to govern. They've made that really, really clear as a political party for many years now they don't believe in governance they only care about politics and owning the libs so let's say they don't pick a house and the house can't actually do any work which means that no matter what the Senate does no legislation whatsoever can pass well you wouldn't have those garbage quote unquote investigations from Republicans and like I said Republicans wouldn't be passing legislation anyway so that wouldn't change we still would have no legislation passing now at a certain point yes there are two key deadlines at which we really have to start thinking about actually passing something because otherwise something really bad will happen the first one is the debt ceiling deadline which is probably going to have hit sometime this summer this is this artificial cap that says that the united states government can only issue so much debt Um, in order to meet its obligations. And, uh, you know, Republicans have tried to make raising this cap Uh, they've tried to take hostages whenever it's come up in the past, most notoriously uh, under John Boehner. So the debt ceiling does have to be raised. Otherwise, we could potentially spark a global financial meltdown if the U.S., for the first time in American history, defaults on its debt. and, And U.S. debt is considered the safest sort of debt in the entire world. But, Joe, do you remember the platinum coin? Oh, yes. 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 So there are a lot of people who say, that the debt ceiling actually isn't even constitutional because the 14th amendment to the constitution says that the uh, debts of the united states government shall not be questioned so on and so forth and there are other really really smart people out there who have come up with all kinds of creative ways of getting around the debt ceiling and my favorite one of all time and i think a lot of people really love this one is that there is this power granted to the president to mint a platinum coin. And it's, I think, generally supposed to be thought of as a commemorative coin, but it doesn't cap the denomination. So Joe Biden could mint a one trillion dollar platinum coin and boom, no more debt ceiling problem. Now, Barack Obama refused to do this, but he was, I think, uh, much more. I don't know. Uh, he, he he was less interested in taking radical approaches to dealing with a completely radicalized opposition. And I feel like Joe Biden has learned a few things that Obama never learned. So if let's say there's no house in, and it's August and we hit the debt ceiling. Well, I'm certain. Actually, I'm 100 percent certain that Joe Biden would find every creative measure he possibly could to avoid defaulting on our debt because he'd say, look, there's literally no Congress. We have to do something. And I'm sure that he would. Now, I don't want to ramble on forever, but the real, real drop dead date would be in October. You know, one of the things that the matt gates are so pissed about was that omnibus spending bill the bill that you know it it gets this you know wonky term omnibus but what it means is this is the bill that allows the government to keep the lights on and stay functioning it pays for our government and thankfully it passed and it passed preserving a lot of mainstream progressive priorities but that funding will run out in october so there simply has to be some kind of spending bill to keep the lights on for the next year after that. But if there isn't, then there would be a government shutdown. Now, a government shutdown is really, really bad, and it's something we should try to avoid. It's not as bad as defaulting on our debt. But if there's a Republican, if if there's a Republican shutdown, if there's a government shutdown caused by Republicans in October because Republicans still haven't managed to pick a speaker of the House like 10 months in, dude. In 2024, they'd be lucky to win 150 seats.
3: <laughs> you know, David, if you if we were texting over the break and in, in the lead up to this and, you know, if we had thought about this last week, we would have both laughed and said, this is so absurd. But after watching these past three days, nothing seems out of no. the question. Right. It is really been. Amazing and stunning, but not surprising to see them behave this way. So, they should be thinking of all these backup plans. The Biden administration should be thinking of all these backup plans. And I think back to that time in 2010, in 2011, when, you know, they, there were so many threats to um, our basic economy and blowing up the world economy with the debt ceiling. And Obama, for for all his strengths, really, I think, never fully grasped what the Republican Party had become. But 11, 12 years later, it is so obvious to everyone, even to someone like Joe Biden, who, you know, um, is as kind of institutional about D.C. as you can get.
5: You know, Joe, you said something a moment ago that I think really, really bears underlining. You said it's stunning, but it's not surprising. It is stunning because, I mean, what an embarrassing shit show for, you know, supposedly the oldest democracy in in the world, and and you know, we're we're, we're supposed to be the leaders of the free world, but it's not surprising because this nihilism has been growing, and metastasizing is the better way to put it, within the Republican Party for a very very long time, and you know, we spend most of our time, Joe, hammering Republicans, but. The other group that we often bring in for criticism is the traditional media. Because, I mean, I don't know if you agree with me, but reading so many of these reports in so many of these traditional media outlets over the last few days, it seems like reporters are genuinely surprised and shocked. They can't believe this is happening. I'm like, dude, where have you been?
3: (laughs) I've had that exact same feeling. I'm like, you know, just... I set up a and I know you did too a Twitter list of kind of uh re- you know reporters to watch on the hill, and they just see especially the ones who are more of the um i call them the gossip columnist types <laughs> the ones who um you know who thrive on their access and they're so into the weeds that they never take a step back and you know if you were reading them over the you know last week, they were kind of like well, you know McCarthy's going to get it.' McCarthy's got a plan He's going to get it And they were saying, believing that Because their little sources Inside McCarthy's team Were telling them that And they went along with it And they do seem Genuinely surprised And I'm like how could you be surprised you not know who, who, who these people are? You see them every day. But it really is interesting. I think when you're so inside the Capitol, you lose perspective on what you're actually seeing. And it all becomes about your next scooplet as opposed to what the big picture is. And I, I, I have I, I couldn't agree with you more on that. I think they have done a trem- tremendous disservice. There's both sides in bullshit that they've been doing forever. And one side... Fundamentally, does not believe in democracy. I mean, we're coming up on the anniversary of oh. the very event that showed it more than anything, and and we're still having to deal with that kind of stuff in the media. It's it's maddening.
5: You know, Joe, you had a tweet that blew up, and I was really glad to see that you were calling out uh, Andrea Mitchell, right? Uh, yes. You know, veteran reporter, been around a really long time, and here she is saying, don't. Democrats have a responsibility for the sake of the country and the institution to bail out Republicans. F you, lady. What? Are, are, are you kidding? I mean, Republicans gerrymandered themselves into this squeaker of a not real majority. This is on them. This is a billion percent on them. They own all of this. And no, it is not the responsibility of the good, responsible parent to bail out the drunken parent who's sitting in the drunk tank right now down at the
3: station house it's so true david i i, I was I had um flipped on msNBC and I tried to avoid her show, Ugh. but she was talking to debbie Dingle, congresswoman Debbie Dingle, and she wanted to know if any Democrat would support McCarthy for the sake of the institution, and I was like, um, "What the on. hell?" Are you kidding me? And it was one of these tw- tweets that just blew up at uh, 13,000 yep. likes, 2,500 retweets. Wow. and But people were so furious. Because it's like, yep. what is wrong with you people? And it was just such a, per, she was just a personification of it. But you yep. see the same kind of thing. Yep. You do see this in the media. Like, um, are Democrats going to cut a deal with Republicans? Like, why don't Republicans cut a deal with Democrats? And you ask that question, and they look at you like, you're crazy, but you know, if, if, and I think a lot of focus has to be on those 18 Republicans who are yes. in Biden held seats. Um, and that's something, you know, the first, <laughs> the first people to identify that for me were you and your colleagues at Daily Coast elections. They, they are in a fix. And now some of them are true believers, but this creates a conundrum for them. What, what do you think about that? moving forward.
5: Yeah, I mean, look, uh, to to your uh, other point, uh, Hakeem Jeffries has gotten 212 votes every single time. Yep. He only needs what what is it, five or six more Republicans yep. whereas McCarthy would need 20 Democrats. So who's the unifying force here? Uh you know, the the, the the McCarthy needs three times, four times, four times as many votes to uh to make up the deficit. So uh, in terms of the those uh vulnerable republicans i mean they are watching their re-election chances swirl down the toilet and they're not even sworn in i mean like forget about a honeymoon period I, it, it, do we even have like an analogy for this situation i mean god it's man i don't know it's like spending it's like, it's like spending the first night after your wedding in a garbage dump <laughs> But yeah, I mean, you know what? Let's say some deal does emerge and McCarthy does become speaker by, you know, giving up his firstborn his secondborn and thirdborn, et cetera, et cetera. The, the the house is going to be such an utter shit show. That's a word that's obviously been used endlessly. And the craziest lunatics, the farthest of the far right will be in charge because McCarthy will know that, you know, a single one of them can call for a vote to oust him as speaker. And they're, he's going to have to give in to the, the worst, most disgusting, salacious investigations of Hunter Biden's laptop. And like you got these guys like the dude who beat Sean Patrick Maloney, Mike Lawler in the Hudson Valley in New York. Like he wants to tackle inflation and, you know, secure the border and work on, you know, create good paying jobs. And man, the GOP plan, they don't have anything about inflation. The whole, only Hunter Biden's laptop. That's it. So what w- what are those guys going to run on in 2024?
3: It's exactly right. And first of all, inflation's going down. It looks like it's getting under control, yeah. which is important and gas prices are going down. Um but that was and that was uh, let's talk about the traditional media with that, too, rolling into the 2022 elections. Remember how they were so mad annoyed at Biden because he gave that speech about democracy the week before the election and didn't mention inflation because Republicans were telling them inflation was the issue. It's like whatever Republicans tell them is the issue is the issue. And even though they were saying that was the issue, they had no plans for inflation then either.
5: Yes. My God. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, and that's the thing you you would hope you'd be wrong, but you would hope that after getting so misled by Republicans and just after Republicans making it clear that they don't have their finger on the pulse of American politics in the 2022 elections, that reporters would be a little bit more skeptical of their read on the politics of electing a House speaker. but. You got all these stenographers. That's how I, I think of a lot of these reporters who just tweet Republican statements without any, yep. you know, critical analysis or thought whatsoever. And but the amazing thing, Joe, is, you know, did did you see that that statement from I'll probably botch the pronunciation of his name, but Republican Guy Reschenthaler from Pennsylvania? He's the one who said that uh, well, let's wait to see what these whole what happens with these holdouts when, you know, Tucker Carlson, you know goes medieval on them tonight you know you know you know what i'm talking about no i hadn't seen that that's interesting yeah and 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 of course tucker carlson was cheering these guys on because he hates yeah. mccarthy and he likes <laughs> chaos so like this is one of like mccarthy's top allies supposedly and like he doesn't even understand the conservative media ecosystem it's so... like there's no way that tucker carlson is coming out to to, to bust matt Gates's ass over mccarthy
3: it's so it's honest to god and and yet. How many times over the past few days you see little sirens in tweets or scoop or oh, breaking, right. and it's like, you know, or I saw a couple today breaking. Looks like there's a deal, uh, you know. You know, they're all talking about who's going in whose offices like it's like junior high school. Well, so-and-so was talking to so-and-so and and -and so-and-so said so-and-so said this about so-and-so. It's like, oh, my God, you people are are, you're juveniles. But then the kicker is always. But it still isn't enough to make McCarthy speak. Right.
5: (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's not a deal. By definition, that's That's not a deal. Yeah, you're totally right. Those tweets about so-and-so is going into such-and-such's office, it's like. Passing notes in middle school. Do you like me? Yes, no. You know, I mean, like, God, I, I don't understand what the value add is is supposed to be for that. So, Joe, I'm gonna. I want to ask you a
3: question. Sure. How many more
5: votes do you think they're gonna be?
3: Oh well, you know what they do today. Five. I think tomorrow there'll be. I think we might hit twenty. I actually do. I, I think there's a good chance we could ten hit 20. votes in one day. Not 10, not 10 tomorrow. I think um, I don't think he'll get it tomorrow. Maybe some miracle will happen or something. But um, what I have a question is, do they stay in over the weekend? Because, you know, there's nothing members of Congress hate more than having to work on a weekend. Which includes Friday for them, which includes. Yeah. Yeah. Like they well, right. Not like the fact that they had to work on a Thursday evening. David is like, oh, my God, appalling. They can't believe it. So they have to be there on Friday and are they going to have to be there Saturday? And they might lose a few votes. Uh, Republicans might lose a few votes on over the weekend um, because of some personal situations people have, I saw, but you know, this is, uh, so I think the question is, do we go through the weekend and, um, or do they go, go home and see what happens and come back Monday? And I still think, I think, you know, we'll get four or five votes tomorrow and, you know, I don't I don't think he gets it before 20. What do you think? Yeah,
5: I, boy, I, you know, I, I keep getting texts from people. How does this end? This is we are so right. deep into the looking glass. I haven't I can't even begin to imagine how this ends. I mean, like, man, I was about to say maybe it ends with him cutting the most self, uh, uh, you know, abasing himself as much as possible and, and cutting the most sort of supplicative deal. But even then, I'm like, I, I, I say that out loud and I hear myself and I'm like, I don't even think that does it. Because yeah. some of these Republicans just hate him on a personal basis. And it's not about what he's offering, but about who he is. And there have been some illuminating articles uh, that I've read. And in one of them, it described McCarthy as sort of your, your prototypical back-slapping Paul who you know he uh you know does workouts with you in the Capitol gym and you know knows when your kids birthdays are and for these hardcore far-right Republicans the fact that he's even willing to make any kind of deals at all and even be in a room with a Democrat is complete anathema to them they want someone who hates Democrats will never talk to a Democrat will never look them in the eye and McCarthy can't give them that because they know who he is
3: David Near, it is always so great to talk to you. You're on Twitter at David Near, uh, Daily Coast Elections. I tell everyone sign up for the Morning Digest. I mean, it was really weird last week. I know you guys needed your vacation, but I was on the air a couple of days and I didn't have my Morning Digest. I'm so it's... sorry. <laughs> no, no, I appreciate it. And also, you have the podcast, The Down Ballot, which is also terrific. Thank you so much, David. And uh, hopefully, we'll talk again soon.
5: Joe, this was a blast. Can't wait for the next time. All
3: right, take care.